0: Rajiv Malhotra, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, wonderful to be here.
0: And your book, uh, that's drawing quite the line in the sand about the role of artificial intelligence. And, and you go into depth a, a lot about uh, factors that you equate with colonialism. Can you tell us something about how AI might, uh, in, and, and use your words, uh, but what that might have to do with colonialism?
1: So, you know, historically, colonialism was related to the Industrial Revolution, because prior to the Industrial Revolution, Britain was not very advanced. And actually, India had a higher manufacturing economy, even as per British own estimates. Uh, Colonialism happened largely because British... Industrial revolution gave them the power, gave them the economic might. Uh, They could then turn the colonies into sources of raw material and captive markets for finished goods. So this is how the colonialism and the industrial revolution feeding each other. Uh, If there hadn't been an industrial revolution, then the colonial enterprise might never have happened, or it might not have lasted so long. So there is that relationship that a, a breakthrough technology creates haves and have-nots, and the new colonial powers could well be America- United States and uh, China, uh, like they were Britain and France in those days. And then, so this is an interesting uh, uh, interesting analogy. And the colonial enterprise led by the East India Company, uh, you know, the East India Company was a private enterprise, like Google, like uh, Facebook, like Twitter, like Amazon, like Mike, all these kind of digital giants. The, the, the you know, East India Company was bigger uh, than the British government. So it was a private enterprise that created a whole colonial enterprise, a colonial empire.
0: So there is that kind of a
1: parallel. Uh, but today the, the, it's the, uh, the ability to take raw data, which is called big data, from a whole lot of places in the world in the guise of giving them free services and in the guise of helping them, which is also true. Uh, but then using this big data to train algorithms to become smarter and smarter, and as the algorithms get trained using this data, they can become smarter and outsmart human beings in many ways, know more about people than they know about themselves, and then turn around into sophisticated products that are sold back into those uh, those markets from where you got the raw material of data. So that's also a kind of a colonialism, uh, maybe more like imperialism. That's why I use this analogy.
0: I see, and you've talked about how Western algorithms are. Bias towards what you refer to as Western universalism and Chinese algorithms favor Chinese nationalism. And I can kind of unpack that, but could you do that for us and tell us what those implications are for countries outside of that orbit?
1: So, you know, Western universalism is a term I discussed in great detail uh, in a book of mine called uh, Being Different, uh, uh, an Indian challenge to Western universalism. Uh, So uh, Western universalism is the result of Western history, European history, uh, uniqueness of Western thought that emerged out of the West experiences, and which are not the same as experiences that other people have had. Everybody has its own experiences and come up with their own worldview as a result of it, their own social structures, political structures. But in the case of the West, it had the power over the rest of the world, and therefore the arrogance to assume that its experiences are universal. So you don't have Africans going around saying this is African universalism. I mean, it's particular to the Africans. And uh, you, you know there are some societies that claim that their thoughts are universal, uh, but the, the power of the West has enabled it to establish this uh, as part of the colonial enterprise. So Western universalism, the spread of the English language, we're speaking in English, the, the international multi, uh, you know, pro- multifaceted uh, uh, multilateral agencies uh, our control and defined uh, designed by the West uh, have helped spread values what is a nation what are human rights what is the uh, the concept of currency what the dollar as a reserve currency I mean all of the things that c- comprise the world order uh, have been designed largely by the West and so the western Western universalism is a sort of a, uh, the world the premises, uh, premises of the, the trajectory of history, the premises of what's socially desirable and undesirable, a lot of the values, a lot of the legal systems, all of this comprises the Western lens, which I call Western universalism. Now, China is the most successful compa- contender that has said, hey, listen, hell no, we don't buy that we're going to assert our own universalism. We have our own idea of the nature of progress and how a society should evolve. And you may think that we are totalitarian. We, We think that we need to be for a while in order to improve the lot of a large number of people very rapidly. So we are, we are, macro optimizing, not micro optimizing for the short term. And therefore we have a right to have our own idea of universalism. So China has created its universalism around, around the Confucian idea into which they brought in communism and Marxism. And then they brought in the free enterprise, but overall the Confucian idea of a collective good uh, overriding the individual good, overriding the individual rights, uh, it, it comprises their their key narrative. So these are two universalisms competing on the world stage right now. Mm.
0: And uh, we're getting quite deep into this issue, and I want to back out for a minute because I, I think it would help to set some context for our listeners on just what has propelled you into this sphere uh, of debate and moved you to write. This book. Can you give us some background on <clears throat> what has brought you to this point? Because writing a book, especially one this thoughtful and this uh, long, it takes uh, a lot of commitment. And and so, what's driving that commitment in you? What experiences led to that?
1: So, you know, I'm a computer scientist by training, and 50 years ago, when I was in grad school, uh, AI was my topic. Of course, it was a very embryonic field in those days. And then I had a successful career in the technology area, both as a corporate executive, then as a, a consultant in helping at British Telecom, a whole lot of these people get into the IT field. And then I branched off and became my own entrepreneur. I had 20 companies. And then I had some spiritual experiences. So I resigned, got out, exit, all that and started pursuing a different life of giving back, researching, understanding humanity and spirituality and traditions and so on. So I've been into that for the last 26 or 27 years. However, five years ago, I decided to go back into the AI field because I found that AI has gone way beyond what I expected it would during my lifetime. And so I saw issues. I saw issues of new haves and have nots emerging. I saw that the, even the discourse on the ethics of AI is being controlled by the Googles and the Microsofts. If you go to organizations that are talking about AI and human rights and AI in society, you'll find that the sponsors and many of the people who are on the board, uh, m- much of the money, it's controlled by these same companies. So there isn't an independent oversight. I, saw the, I thought that the, like the global warming and climate change and these kind of issues are now public discourse. 30, 40 years ago, they were not. A few people were uh, talking about them, and they were considered conspiracy theorists, and they were considered, you know, that this is out of line. Maybe it's too exaggerated. There's no problem. I think that uh, the issue of AI today is where the issue of uh, climate change was, say, 30 years ago. Uh, But things are moving very fast. There will be problems and nobody with who nobody is speaking out who has the credentials the authority the knowledge to do so but who's not aligned and not part of one of these camps and so the the people who are going to be uh, you, you know if not victims at maybe too strong a term but people who are going to be compromised uh, people who are going to be affected are the bottom 50% of the pyramid in terms of uh, you know economics and social economic status a lot of people in poor countries a lot of people in places like united states who are minorities women and so on they're going to be affected by all this but they don't have a seat at the table they don't have the qualifications many of the ngos who speak for you know humankind are just not qualified to go and raise the kind of issues social scientists haven't gotten into this to the same extent, like say climate change. So I saw a vacuum of leadership, a vacuum of discourse that was needed uh, thoughtfully. And, and uh, so I decided that I should roll up my sleeves. I've spent the last five years putting this book together.
0: And so you talk about uh, India's role in particular, because you're obviously uh, well-informed in that area and I, and I think a lot of other people would, when thinking about India and computers would think of say Mumbai and Bangalore as being centers of software development, uh, primarily outsourcing from Western companies, uh, that there is a, a great disparity in in wealth, uh, but certainly some uh, great wealth as a result of that uh, level of activity. And so isn't India, actually a, a powerhouse of software development? What's the, why, why are we not speaking about them in the same uh, context as, as, say, China with respect to AI development?
1: That's a very important point you've raised. Uh, India and China both started out doing labor arbitrage. Uh, you know, uh, cheap labor, they could sell for four times the price. India did it with software people. China did it with factory workers. And So you know you could hire an Indian, still you can hire a software guy for $10,000 a year, and you can market this to the American client for $40,000 a year, and a few people in the middle make lots of money. So it created several billionaires that India is very proud of, but these they basically they traded on brains. The Indians did not keep the intellectual property. So the, the, the analogy I give is you know poor villagers are brought to a city like Delhi, and they work on a construction site, and they are paid. And there are some middlemen who make a lot of money on it. But at the end of the day, when the job is over, they don't own even one brick that they have installed. They don't own the Indian software. People don't own a single line of code that they may have installed hundreds of millions of lines of code for Microsoft, but they don't own anything. So they are, they are workers for hire maybe much better paid than other workers in the country. And a few of them right at the top making a lot of money. But India as a nation and its institutions do not own the intellectual property. So this is is taking raw material in this case, I earlier gave the example of data as raw material. This is brains as raw material. India has exported a large amount of brains as raw material. It has created a middle class. But at the end of the day, the the Western countries are ahead in terms of intellectual property, which they can license back. So China is a little different, uh, much smarter than India in this sense, because China took the money they made from arbitrage of factory workers. Uh, At least 50% they reinvested in futuristic technologies. They invested in in uh, lithium-ion batteries, which is the basis of electrical cars. They have now got 50% market share of lithium-ion uh, in the world. They invested in uh, solar energy. They are the leaders in solar power, solar energy uh, panels, uh, in drones, uh, in robotics, uh, and in artificial intelligence. So they made some huge bets. Uh, they made bets that are, you know, going to, they were going to pay off over 10 years, multi-billion dollar bets. India didn't do that. India was happy renting brains, making money short term. That's a short term kind of uh, optimization, not a long term view. And uh, the, the it was private people who made all this happen. The government sort of let it happen because it could collect all this money, uh, taxes and all that, and and increase the buying power of a middle class. But they didn't take a long-term strategic view saying, why don't we take these brains and invent the AI technology of the future rather than just renting the brains to the Americans who are building the technology. So the interesting thing is that uh, when it comes to control, the Chinese took control of a whole lot of manufacturing, which is very difficult to bring back to the U.S., and when, when the Americans would come and say, we want you to manufacture an iPhone, let's say, a Chinese would say, we need to know the design because to manufacture it, we need to know the design. So under the contracts, they would give up the design to the Chinese and Chinese would look at the design, learn it. They're very smart people. And they would start doing similar things of their own. These, the Indians did not say, OK, we're writing your software, so we know how the bank works. Uh, we are writing your software for pharmaceuticals. We know how your pharma industry works or how your defense industry works. And so therefore, we're also going to steal those ideas. So Indians were sort of like renting the brain, but not capturing the intellectual property back and making use of it. So India and China, uh, are, China is now 10 years ahead of India in artificial intelligence. But uh, several years ago, India was considered the software superpower. The, I, the irony is that the software of superpower was basically a services model, not an innovation model, not a model based on building actual products that have that, that own the intellectual property, but renting brains to the client and let the client keep all the intellectual property. This is this is where I have a problem with the Indian strategy.
0: Mm. China is famed for at the government level. Thinking a uh, hundred years into the future, I, I don't know how accurate that is, but it's certainly the reputation that they have that they make those kind of strategic choices, and that their um, uh, autocracy enables them to to make quite an authoritarian uh, decisions regarding that, which obviously have human rights impacts. Yes, that kind of label does not uh, get attached to India. Yes, is there something that you would say to the Indian government that they could do in respect of their strategic planning to improve their position?
1: So, you know, you touched a nice point. Uh, Chinese can make short-term sacrifices because they don't have to, can pressure the people to make sacrifices short-term so that they can invest for some, something that will be a big breakthrough 20 years from now. They announced a dozen year or more years ago that by 2025, they will be the world-leading AI power. And the US national security thinks that that's about to happen and the US is very concerned about it. Now that's a long term payoff and it's not a short term thing. In, in a democracy like India, you know, you have to be popular. You, you cannot tell people, you know, uh, we, we want you to have pain for 10 years and then your children will be happier. You cannot get away with that. Politicians are known to just give promises and make people feel good, and let tell people what they want to hear. And making them sacrifice, tighten their belts and, and, and all that is not something a democracy can do. So there is an inherent uh, advantage that a totalitarian system like China, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that this is one of the benefits they get. They sacrifice their rights, their freedom. Uh, the government could be uh, uh, terrible, and uh, you know, like many d- dictatorships have been, and not give them any benefit. But on the other hand, certain dictator, dictatorial type uh, regimes like like Singapore. Singapore also had a very uh, autocratic, although they got elected, but they were very autocratic, kind of a tough, heavy handed government. discipline uh, was imposed. But uh, in the process, they delivered a lot. China seems to have done that also on a very large scale. They made the people sacrifice their short term freedom, but they delivered them some phenomenal results, unprecedented in history, such a huge again in uh, standard of living for such on a, such a large scale never happened before. So the question is, uh, you know, India, India enjoys, okay, we are free. Uh, but the point is that China is gaining the prosperity multiple f- times the GDP per, per capita GDP of India and, and uh, exceedingly powerful in weaponry and military and political might and clout. Uh, and, and, you know, so when you compare the two 30, 40, 40 years ago, they were similar. Economies, In fact, in many ways, India was way ahead of China in those days. Uh, And India followed its way and China followed its way. Uh, The results are that China has come out four times, five times ahead of India in many key technologies. So there are some lessons to be learned about the benefits of centralized planning, long term planning. Uh, You know, people say that you shouldn't have a planned economy, but Singapore has, Taiwan has, South Korea has. Uh, China has. So some of these centralized economies have done very well. So so India can probably learn a thing or two from that.
0: Mm. Uh, it seems that we're shaping up to have another battle of the superpowers, just like the Cold War was uh, America and Russia. Now it's looking like an AI war between America and China. And, and, and China is currently estimated to be two years behind the United States. So I think they are on target to pull ahead by 2025 and and superpower battles are like you know Godzilla and Mathra um, <laughs> going through <laughs> Tokyo they don't notice that there's chatting on other people around there and and so that kind of battle has collateral damage to to the others and and that might not just be Chinese incursions in uh, the, the northern territory of India but uh, what might that mean to be uh, a small player on the AI stage when these superpowers start duking it out? Uh, our listeners can't see, but imagine fists.
1: So, you know, uh, it's already happening. Uh, China has colonized for all practical purposes large parts of Africa. Uh, they have cut a deal in Zimbabwe where in the guise of giving them uh, surveillance for security, Uh, They have put in thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of cameras, surveillance cameras, and these have facial recognition. So they keep track of who is going where. And this includes government people, military people, officials. Of course, they are giving the government, uh, you know, the benefit of some kind of security, giving them information. But Chinese are collecting all this big data about the movements. And when you know so much about the elite of a country, and you're also listening to all their messages, uh, and what they post, what they click. You, you have a complete profile of every single important person. You could also blackmail them. You could also say that I'll favor this guy over that guy. Uh, and, and you have all this knowledge to do so. And so this is how the colonial enterprise was, was functioning. The, the British had numerically very, very few Englishmen. Posted in India, uh, you know, controlling a huge number of people because they had this knowledge and they could play one against the other and they could appropriate and co-opt local people to work for them. So this sort of game, China is perfecting. I would say China is, in, in its in its experience, they're climbing up the learning curve very rapidly, but they are where the European colonialist colonial power started 200 years ago, and Africa is a is perfect place where they're doing it. In some ways, they're also colonizing Pakistan, because they've, they've given them a huge amount of money, Pakistan never going to be able to give it back, and they want access through Pakistan to the Arabian Sea. For various kinds of reasons for trade and military and so on. And this, uh, in the process, they are controlling the economy. They're controlling some of the leaders in Pakistan. And again, they have a surveillance, uh, surveillance system uh, in Pakistan for the sake of uh, security of Pakistan, supposedly, but also it keeps them in control. They know what's going on there. So, China is doing this quite effectively. Uh, United States has the private sector, these Googles of the world and, and, you know, all these Facebooks and so on. It's the private sector in the United States doing this internationally and globally. And I'm sure the government has some access to it and knows how to get the benefit of it. Certainly the US government. Benefits when U.S. free enterprise goes around the world and does these things. So it's a different, more sophisticated approach. Plus, I'm sure the CIA. Well, we know for a fact the CIA, from what Snowden did, said and so on, the CIA has been doing its own surveillance uh, in this manner. So the two, uh, these two, if you think of them as AI superpowers, are competing not only against each other but are also competing for colonies. I mean, like France and England were fighting wars against each other, but they were also fighting over colonies. In fact, in India, uh, the British army and French army were having wars with each other in India uh, over its territorial control. So this is going to this is going to be the state of affairs. I think this AI cyber warfare, uh, uh, this kind of thing, uh, has a military implication. A lot of AI gets into military weaponry. Both uh, superpowers are in a race to to do that. So a lot of the other countries, they don't have much choice because it takes huge amount of investment to develop these AI systems. And, and to the uh, scale, you, need, you cannot do it on a tiny scale. So the rest of the countries, I mean, there are some who are second tier powers, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, some of the European countries, Russia, uh, you know Israel. These are sort of uh, second tier players. Maybe they won't get colonized. But they'll align with one or the other, perhaps, and they'll they'll have a st- status of their own. But what happens to the rest of the world after you take care of these people? You still have, you know, two thirds of the world are not going to be in tier one or tier two. So that is a a, a concern of mine. And I, I wrote this book because I want to create awareness on that kind of neo colonialism, neo imperialism, which is I think on its way.
0: And. You've made some points there about uh, how most of the world has to think about geopolitics and, and and who's around them, and consider the security and stability of their borders in a way that people in the United States just don't have to. There is no concern about uh, any kind of problem from Canada or Mexico in terms of the, threatening the stability of the, the country. Occasional smuggling or illegal immigration has got nothing to do with that, and and that provides a different perspective. I, I think um, shifting to a term that's become uh, widespread during the pandemic, we've talked about K-shaped recoveries, and and that refers to the fact that if you chart what happened since the pandemic started to uh, the effects economically on different classes, the quite diverse some have gone down and some have gone up depending on what sector they're in and just sort of a crude difference would be that if you're in the entertainment business like you own a theme park uh, you're closed you're not going anywhere Uh, but if your job is say um, making video conferencing software you're doing pretty well Uh, likewise Amazon and and so forth and that's uh, a that's demonstrating how disruption can have inequitable effects. and So it, it seems to me you're talking about the, the same dynamic that a, a disruptive factor has inequitable effects. Now, the, the sort of colonial um, aspirations and effects that you've been talking about, have, of course, existed before AI began its ascendancy. But what about AI makes that especially pernicious?
1: Well, you know, the, the, uh, the scale of uh, money needed is uh, not available to everybody. The scale of technological sophistication is, is not available to anybody. Uh, and, you know, there are people who are already in many parts of the world, not well educated even by uh, pre-AI standards. So when AI, uh, skilling uh, for AI learning data, uh, data sciences and new kinds of software uh, raises the bar of who's going to make it into this uh, new elite club, a lot of people are going to be left behind. So there's an education factor which separates the people. There's a capital availability of capital factor. There's availability of strategy uh, you know, in this. Uh, so I would say that uh, the K-shaped is a very good example of this because uh, what's going to happen, I feel, is there will be an exacerbation of inequalities. Uh, the, even within the same country, uh, you will find that uh, some people will get become very rich as a result of AI because they're on the, on the right side, if you will, of this uh, eco- new economy. And others are going to be out of work because their jobs are going to be affected. So as an example, if, you are, uh, if there is driverless cars uh, and you know, you're a driver, then you know, you're out of work. But one could argue that new jobs have been created, but maybe those new jobs are in Silicon Valley. And I'm a driver in uh, you know, Montreal, or in New Delhi, or wherever, in Trenton, New Jersey. I don't get the benefit that some people in Silicon Valley making a lot of money out of it. So the, some industries are going to boom. Others are, are going to downsize. When uh, iTunes came, uh, you know, the whole music industry shook up. Uh, we had a music chain, retail chain called Sam Goodies uh, here in the U.S. And they had like tens of, a couple of tens of thousands of stores. Every downtown had a Sam Goodies. My kids used to go there to buy albums. There's no more Sam Goodies because now you download... The, the entire uh, phenomenon of uh, record labels is gone. So a new economy has been created, no doubt. And Apple made a lot of money and they hired a lot of people, new jobs are created. And so there, there are new, new kinds of uh, you know, employment opportunities, but people who work, who work at the cash register in Sam Goodies are gone. So same you could say about Amazon, They have created a whole new economy. They've hired uh, a few hundred thousand people who work there in big warehouses and so on and who drive their trucks. So they have created new jobs. But what about all the small retailers that are out of business? So this disruption is happening at individual levels, at industry levels, in regions of the country, but also between countries, between countries where some are going to be colonizers and some are going to be colonized. This, I think, is so serious and so fast Compared to the industrial revolution in the uh, 200 years ago, this is happening so fast, it's going to create violence. It's going to create social, social unrest because you'll have large numbers of people who are just not satisfied with the way things are. And the concentration of wealth is unprecedented. If you look at how much wealth in certain countries is owned by the top 1%, that percentage is becoming huge. And how many, uh, you know, what percent of the wealth is owned uh, in the world by the bottom 50%, you know, that's shrinking. Particularly, you look at African women are a huge casualty. I mean, there are World Bank reports on this and the jobs of the future of the result of all this uh, disruption. Uh, There is International Labor Organization has produced reports, UNCTAD. I've quoted a lot of this in my book. So, certain segments, certain countries, certain strata, certain ethnic groups are really going to be affected. And this is something that requires a conversation uh, on the same level as the conversation on uh, climate change. Uh, But we are not having that conversation. And I I would like to start that.
0: Well, this is one of the places where we try and have that conversation. And I agree, it should involve many, many times more people than we're currently reaching. Thank you for coming here to start that. And and for what it's worth, it's going to be a lot easier for self-driving vehicles to take jobs away from people in Phoenix, Arizona, than it will be in New Delhi for quite a while, Um, just uh, given the average state of, uh, of the traffic.